0: My guest today is the co-founder of WearWorks. you got to hear his story. This is unbelievable. WearWorks invented a navigation system that removes the need for sight and sound. In other words, you can walk around without really having to see anything uh, or hear anything, but only by picking up the vibrations. So I didn't know this. And of course, I learned for the first time. So so what happens is WearWorks invents this And then this leads them to actually uh, help the first blind person to compete in the New York City Marathon. So that gave them the fame. And uh, he's also a public speaker. He's an inclusive technologist. We'll hear what that is. And a fashion and industrial designer. So everybody meet my guest, Keith Kirkland. Welcome to the show, Keith.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really good to be here.
0: Uh, I'm dying to listen to you. So... uh, So now I have a riddle for everyone listening or watching. So, what do you get when you cross fashion design, technology, and movement? (laughs) Keith, I believe you have the answer. What is it?
1: Yeah. So you basically get a suit that allows you to download kung fu, and a suit that teaches you using vibrations. Um, You know that part. That combination was kind of what I set for myself at the beginning of my thesis that has driven a lot of my work, this intersection of what's possible at these places. And every time the question is presented something different, but in its latest iteration, it's presented the Wayband, which is a way to help people who are blind and visually impaired navigate using a wearable through touch.
0: So wearables are are big these days. So this this is this is first time I'm hearing something like this. I mean, everybody has those things wireless and everything, but this is all about moving around. So, um, so when you cross fashion, technology, and movement, so this is a a suit or a gadget or all of the above. What is it?
1: Yeah. So it's actually it's a wristband and a haptic navigation app that gently guides you to your end destination. And so if you think of it, think of it like Google Maps, but instead of having to constantly stare at the phone or have this annoying person talking to your ear, we give you all that information through your skin, through touch and vibrations, gentle nudges to push you back onto the pathway. And that way your ears and eyes stay open to explore actually what it is that you're doing when you're navigating.
0: So you're wearing it like a watch.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And this watch tells you which way to go, turn right, turn left.
1: Exactly, exactly. You wear it on your wrist and it tells you through what we patented is called a haptic corridor. So it's like a haptic compass and you can feel which way is the right way to go. And as you spin 360 degrees around, the experience changes to let you know where you are in the experience and how far away you are from being correct.
0: And how is it? picking up so you know when i introduced you i said vibrations so uh, walk us through this in terms of how this wristband band is picking up vibrations and what are those vibrations uh, how does that work
1: yeah. And so, so we'll start from the beginning. Right. So imagine, you know, you just arrived in Romania or, you know, you're in Austin for the first time and you're at South by Southwest. Right. Or you're a person who's blind or visually impaired and you're trying to find out like, you know, where the new local supermarket is. Now, what you do right now is you type or you say where you want to go into some type of mapping application like a Google or an Apple Maps. What then happens is, is then you then stare at the screen and you try to orient yourself like, where am I going? Is it this way? Oh, hey, it's okay, cool. You try to visualize where you're facing on the map with where it is that you're going, which is confusing for enough people. And then you start walking in that direction, right? Yeah, I never,
0: by the way, I never get that right. I always (laughs) walk (laughs) and then I turn around and come because it takes a while for, for it to pick up, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And especially like if you're coming out of like a train station or underground, like it can take a second to kind of recalibrate once you've popped up above ground. But after that, you know, like that's a technical challenge. Right. And that sometimes that happens. But also, too, we just have people who are just like like, uh, you know, they just have poor senses of spatial information. It's just it's, it's directions and navigation is just, just like a challenge, like understanding which way you're on a map from a bird's eye view versus which way you're looking versus which way you need to go. Right. And so. What we do is we simplify that whole experience by just, you wave your hand around, and when you're facing in the right direction, the vibrations just stop. There's no thinking, there's no, which way do I need to go? And when you go and you start to swivel in the direction that's correct, imagine like a left or right, kind of like a compass, like in this area, it's correct, like Pac-Man's open mouth or missing slice of pizza. And now, what you do is at the edge of the pizza, we give you a tiny vibration that says, Hey, you've hit the wall. You're about to go start going off course in a major way. And as you hit that piece, as you turn more through that, let's say, the vibration gets stronger and stronger until you're 180 degrees the wrong way. At that point, we give you the loudest vibration we can to let you know, like, you're really wrong. So imagine it like a game of hot and cold or you know, where no, nothing is the right way to go. And every level of intensity and in your 360 degree experience is some varying degree of wrong. Mm-hmm.
0: I see. So it's, it's all through vibration. And so the, so the reason why you help the blind person is, is that the audience for this product or are there any other applications?
1: Yeah. And so we're starting with the Blind and Visually Impaired group. The biggest need, the pain point, is very, very real um, um, for the blind, and visually impaired population. But we've also started working with the deaf-blind population as well, because in the case of people who are deaf-blind, you don't have access to the, you know, the optional audio information for a blind person. That audio information makes it hard to listen to what's going on around them. For a deaf-blind person, that audio information also isn't accessible. And then we started looking, and we realized that. People who are deaf also have a very powerful use case with us because when you're deaf, you're looking at the phone to look at the map and you can't hear what's going on around you. So you're effectively blind to the rest of the world. So we can give you the map through your skin so that your eyes can focus on paying attention. Then any limited use of hearing you have wouldn't be necessarily detrimental to your mapping and navigation experience. And then beyond that, we were really looking at Access for wheelchair users, both manual and power wheelchair users. Because if you're rolling your wheelchair, you still need a map. And guess where you put your phone? You put it right on your lap. And guess what? Like you're scared that someone's gonna like run a pass and steal it off of your lap. You're scared you're gonna drop your $1,000 phone and crack the screen when you hit a bump while rolling. And what people do is they put their phone in between their legs. But, you know, they have to keep stopping like the cyclist in Manhattan. You have to stop every two blocks to figure out where the next turns are. And so by giving them the information through touch, they can kind of keep things moving. And we're going to work on building out the map to allow for navigation through eventually curb cuts. So we're really looking at accessible ways of navigating. And then ultimately the neurodivergent community, especially if you look at people on the autistic spectrum, touch is just a a more accessible way of communicating. And that's what we feel. And so what we're trying to do is enable the tools to proliferate, to allow that to to occur, and we're starting with navigation as our opening point, and we're starting with the blind community as our our, our as our opening audience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I feel that there's so much opportunity in this when, in this application. Whichever way you go, I think that's going to be a huge business for you. Yeah. And everything that you you describe is all separate audiences, but each one on its own is, 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 is huge, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, like, if you look at the blind and visually impaired community, 285 million worldwide globally. You look at the hearing impaired community, 466 million. So just by going from focusing on the blind to focusing on the blind and hearing impaired communities, we like triple our market size and we serve them with the exact same product because at the end of the day, you know, more people have access to the skin.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, um, how about driving? I mean, now they have these self-driving cars, but let's say that you don't have access to self-driving cars. So can a blind person be driving with this?
1: Um, no, not yet. You know, like I think that, you know, right now, so I, I think the way we look at the functionality and, you know, like, you know, I'm smiling because, you know, um, uh, and that's something super exciting that we actually want to like play around with. Was like, how far can we expand the capabilities through this medium? Right now, we're taking a linear stream of information. We're taking only your GPS location and your orientation in space. We're not taking into consideration any obstacles that may be around you. And so, for that case, our case doesn't help. And it also for people who are blind or visually impaired. Um, who are walking along the street, we don't detect obstacles. We won't let you know that the light is green, that a car is coming, that there's a telephone pole in your way. That's kind of like the cane and the guide dogs ecosystem of the micro-nobility part. We're focusing really on like the macro part. But for driving, because we don't do obstacles, that part becomes, you know, an important part of the driving equation. But, you know, in the future, do we see being able to do like potentially like, more advanced things like driving that's, that' that's definitely a future that we're building towards
0: yeah so i uh this, when you mentioned uh, obstacles uh, it this reminded me uh, many years ago uh, for new year's Eve, I wanted to be in Times square, so uh, you know it, it, the new york city new year's eve Times square, forget it the police you know crowd control is, is huge. So, uh, but not knowing any of those things, <clears throat> my first time, I thought, well, if I take the subway to Times Square, I'm going to come out right where the action is, you know, so I'll, I'll be okay. <laughs> so so that's what I did. Sure enough, I come out, but guess what? Everything was cordoned off. So I ended up like 20 blocks from Times Square. That was the only place where I could actually get out without any barriers or anything and then i had to make my way back of course i could only go as far as 10 blocks i was still far so in this case your uh, uh, your, your system will work like the way i worked i will just make my way over there
1: exactly like all, the, all
0: the obstacles are not going to be around me right
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, yeah. so like like we'll we we'll, and, and the thing that we really we we really looked at because we looked at solving that problem and there are a few companies that are doing amazing technology in that space of, of obstacle avoidance. But when we talked to people who were blind or visually impaired and we presented some obstacle avoidance things, they told us they was like, look, you know, like this is great, like we need this part, but the bigger part of the problem is this navigation thing that you're working on, like. If you can solve like like they like we've figured out how to get places and how to avoid things like you know to varying degrees of you know like you know awesomeness, but like the navigation part, if you can solve that, like you'll actually like change the landscape in a major way. Like, stop doing this, and go focus on that. And then the other piece that they told us is they was like, oh, and while you're doing that, don't build a blind device. Build a device that everybody can use that is optimized for the blind experience. It's like if you build it for us if you build it with us in mind we'll find you um but if you build it only for us we won't want it because we don't want technology that you know adds stigma uh to the fact that we already have a disability and so you know like a big part of our consideration and a lot of the choices that we made from the product point of view and especially from the design point of view is how do we make sure that like this is something that like it just looks like something that is cool and that, like, anyone would wear it doesn't look like a an assistive technology device and that's because it's not because we never started to build a company for assistive technology we started to build a better way to navigate it just happens to work really fantastically well for you know the assistive technology community
0: yeah yeah i mean that's a big deal i mean like these days you have that uh, virtual reality headsets right i mean they're too big. It's it's too bulky. It's not really practical to. Uh, yeah, the experience is good, but I think it's still in its infancy. And I think the your approach about making it, you know, attractive enough for people to be able to wear it that that's that's a much better way to go so uh, it gets embraced so well very very interesting I mean this is this is what I would call definitely visionary and revolutionary in every way so now tell us about how you are marketing this obviously you are here because you're setting up on Amazon we'll discuss that but uh, how does one go about marketing such a unique idea like this
1: yeah and so uh a big part of us for marketing and this is actually like a live conversation that we're figuring it out in real time so you know like these answers may change by the time this podcast is released but you know like a a big part of the way that we've been doing marketing for us is that our way band helped the first person who was blind run 15 miles of the new york city marathon without any side of assistance and basically you know we made history when we did that and so Our first run, you know, like when I remember when we first got a call from our runner, you know, we weren't planning on doing necessarily PR as part of our marketing camp. I don't think we had a marketing campaign idea at the time. We were just trying to build some technology that worked. And so he reached out to us and was like, hey, if this works, like I'd I'd run a new state marathon with it. And we were like, "Mm, that's probably not possible based off of like where we think the tech is right now. But also we were like, well, you know, let's give it a shot and see what happens you know like and it was a very small thing it was like hey he reached out to us we'll see if we can help you know we, it wasn't going to be a big thing we just we're we just gonna like sneak him into the marathon essentially without telling anyone and just like you know see if he runs and if he works then like hey we'll tell everyone after we succeeded you know like that it worked and oh, but wait a minute. somehow so
0: when, he, when he when he ran people didn't know he was blind
1: no, no, he, they, he did know he was blind. Yeah, our original plan was just to put him in the race and not do any of that extra work. Um, but then somehow uh, we got a call from the marathon, which was funny because they literally called my cell phone. It was like, hi, this is the marathon. I'm like, uh, <laughs> hi. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, we heard about everything that you want to do. We think it's super duper cool, but we think it's a terrible idea to not have him have like backup guys as runners just in case. So we worked out a thing where we would have backup runners to support him in case anything happened with the technology. And, you know, like uh, essentially what happened was, is we, we ran it like poured down raining. We didn't account for that part of it. And the waveband was working fine, but we had built them another piece of technology, a chest sensor that could detect other runners. So the wave band had the route and their other runners were on his chest. And when he had, when the chest piece got too waterlogged and stopped working properly, he couldn't detect the proximity of the other runners anymore, and so we had to, you know, bring in the backup runners for from a safety point of view. And he was no longer running independently. So, mm-hmm. but after we did that, we were, you know, a blind person before that had never run any part of the New York City Marathon without sighted assistance. So, when we told people what we were trying to do. A person who was sitting behind a camera one day happened to work at Forbes and was like, what did you just say? And pitched it to Forbes. And then, you know, Forbes was following us around and then Discovery started following us around and then The Verge started following us around and then New York Times started following us around. And now all of a sudden like this very, hey, let's try this quick little experiment to see if this works or not and see how far we can get became like a very big, like if this doesn't work, like (laughs) it's it's gonna be a very open and very public failure. You know, like, so we had like a a crap ton of pressure to, to, to deliver, but when, you know, like, and, and we couldn't raise the money to do it, which was the funny part. Like, you know, like literally like a friend of mine saved our butts a month before and gave us all the money that we needed to build out the tech. And that's how we got a person to run across the marathon, you know, finish line. But then after that, that story had such legs on it, no pun intended, but you know, like it's still like, we still do interviews for it now. And you know, that was over five years ago. So a big part of our marketing story has been really around us helping a person who was blind run a New York City Marathon without sighted assistance. And the other part of it has been on our, revolu- like our revolutionary application and, and the idea of touch as like a digital communications channel.
0: So as far as, so it, is the product currently available? To purchase,
1: yes. So the Wayband band is available in the app store right now. Go download it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so this is so this is an app, but you
0: need the the band, no?
1: It's a it's a so the way we look at it is, is that it's a it's a it's an ecosystem. So you need the app, and it's just like a mapping application. You don't need anything else but the app. Now, if you don't have the band, we just make the phone vibrate because guess what? Your phone already has haptics in it. Um, so we make the phone vibrate. You hold the phone, you spin around. And as you spin with the phone in your hand, the vibrations change and let you know the exact same thing that the band tells you. Now, that one is $99 for the year, or it's $9.99 for the month, or you can pay $249 for the Wayband, get a year included with the app. And now you have a hands-free experience, which means you don't have to hold the phone in your hand. And we found that a lot of our people, especially in the disabilities community, had really, big concerns around walking around with their phone out for fear of vulnerability of it being either like um, broken um, or stolen
0: so as far as the the product so your your main product is the app or the band
1: exactly the main product is the app
0: okay and you are distributing that all through online channels
1: Exactly, through download. the app store.
0: And downloading it is free or they have to pay?
1: Uh, downloading it is $9.99 a month or $99 for the year. And you get a one-month free trial when you download it.
0: Okay. So, and then at that point, they can use their phone for the vibrations.
1: Exactly. And,
0: the, and anybody who downloads the app, what is the app called again?
1: It's called Wayman. Wayman. And yeah.
0: uh, when you download the app, does it have any way to direct the person to purchase the band?
1: Yeah. So if you download the app inside the app and the menus button, there's a button there that says purchase your Wayband. If you click on that, it'll take you directly to our website and you can order your Wayband directly from there. Okay.
0: So currently you are selling it through your website. That's the only place or uh, I know we're going to discuss Amazon. I know you are in, in the process. So uh, tell, tell us about your Amazon strategy. How does Amazon fit into this equation?
1: Yeah, so our current sales right now have mainly been through our website. Um, the Wayband is launching in September. So we're manufacturing and shipping essentially right now. Um, and everything will be ready to our first batch of pre order customers by September. So the big piece is, has been like, we've walked in and we've done a lot of pre-orders through direct marketing um, from our website, direct purchases. The other part of those pre-orders have come from like large organizations. Um, so we have partners in the blind and visually impaired space um, that we've been working with. One of our uh, our partners is the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind. Um, and so they're working directly with us, you know, to purchase and purchase on behalf of consumers in a way that will allow them to then distribute the bands directly to their constituents so we kind of have a two-part model that's both b2b and b2c and we're also building uh, a b2g model as well working directly with governments
0: okay so you're gonna basically you're gonna have distributors uh, even though these are not distributors that will buy for the purpose of reselling that this is just that they have membership, their own audiences, yeah. and that's what they are buying for, right?
1: But, but actually too, so th- there's actually three. So we expect to have users who are direct to customer, just want to purchase the Wayband on behalf of themselves. We have users that we know um, from the B2B side where businesses are purchasing on behalf and giving waybands away for free. And then we also have distributors that want to work with us that want a wholesale price on the wayband so that they can sell it to their constituents at a markup. Um, and so for us, the Amazon piece fits into on our D2C sales strategy side. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing right now is, is that our website and direct the customer customer has been an okay channel. We've spent no marketing spend for selling 600 units of our initial run of a thousand. So, so far so good, but from a scaling point of view, um, we believe that ultimately Amazon has a much more powerful channel from a, from a number of eyes and people who are coming and showing up with a readiness to purchase. And so we see the way we see Amazon is, is using it as an A-B strategy to test our website direct sales because we're going to have Amazon do the fulfillment on the back end regardless of whether you buy from Amazon or buy from us. So that part isn't in the equation. And we want to see like, does Amazon drives us significantly more sales than our direct to customer website purchases? And that way we can understand where to spend more of our direct to customer spending from a marketing point of view.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, what does your research show you about the potential between promoting your website versus promoting the listings on Amazon?
1: Yeah. So right now, um, I think the 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 big pieces is, is that it's going to be much more profitable, of course, for us to go and do it directly. Um, we're not paying Amazon fees. Uh, we're going to pay for the distribution fees, at least upfront, just because we don't want that headache as a startup. Um, and, you know, Amazon's delivery is like, you know, I ordered something on Amazon at 6am one time and it showed up at nine, you know, like it's, we don't have that kind of logistical system or framework. And customers are super happy when you order something three hours later and it shows up. So like, let's, let's, let's borrow that for now. We're willing to pay for that um, as we grow and we start to see kind of, like we get into our space of 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 units. At that point, those microtransaction fees are going to start to become like massive. Um, And then at that point, we really need to have an understanding of like, does the Amazon channel drive enough traffic for it to make sense? And, you know, we we have speculation that yes, Amazon is going to be a really strong channel for it. Um, We think that with the device that we have in particular, um, it's, It's a very novel device that allows technologists to try something new in a different way. It's a very disability-focused device. So anyone who has a person, like, every person that we joke and say, like, every person who has, like, who's blind, originally impaired has, like, 20 pairs of eyes looking out for them, you know? Like, so mothers, fathers, teachers, like, if you've met a person who's blind, if you have a friend who's blind, the minute something that can help people who are blind shows up, you're like, yo, I saw this. So... How do we tag into those eyes that that we do have access to that are representative of those communities um, as well? And we think Amazon is a great platform for that because of their massive reach and scale. Um, But right now it's it's only speculation. So the goal is, is like, let's put some dollars behind the setup. And, you know, we AB test and the data shows itself to to see kind of like who went out over a, a few months of experiments.
0: So, okay, so let me give you a little bit on the Amazon side versus the website side. So so this is something that I always... When somebody is new, especially you you are a new company, new brand, new product, everything is new, which means you have no infrastructure. Everything that you're going to build is going to be based on your experience and, and, and experience being experience of handling the business that you have been looking to build. So that business also is all changing and and ultimately if you're selling direct to consumer which you know you are at the end of the day and and let's face it the kind of consumers that you are selling to are also more difficult to handle because they are impaired right so their needs will will be a lot more important for you to be able to address so that you provide a great customer experience so so There comes the challenge. Now, you decide what business you want to be in. Do you want to be in the business of selling your product? Or do you want to be in the business of selling your product, doing fulfillment, pick-pack ship operations, and providing customer service, returns, refunds, phone calls? It's three different businesses. So as a startup, it is impossible for a business to be good at all three right from the get-go. So you're going to fail. You're going to fail be- meaning you're going to be below people's expectations with one of those things. So this, by the way, is your best case scenario because if you are selling one, two, three pieces a day, this is an non-issue. But if you scale and things are coming at you, this is when you're going to have these problems. And this is the best case scenario because it only happens if you've really done something really well and then you've got a lot of demand. Now, the worst case scenario is really where most people are. Because if you're at the end of the day, you've got PR, you've got these alliances, they are great. But when it comes to transactional sale, it's all about How many clicks did it take for somebody to make a purchase? And how much did I pay for that individual purchase? That's what it comes down to. Now, how do you do that? You do that simply by driving people to your website. How are you going to drive people to your website? You're going to go advertise on Google, advertise here, advertise there, whatever, social media. And then ultimately, people will come to your website. Now, challenge number one is paying through your nose those clicks that are all over the place, which, by the way, some people, like people listening to this podcast, will click. Well, they'll click on your ad. They have no intention of buying. So they'll come to your website. So, so your cost of driving eyeballs to your website will be fairly high. Then comes challenge number two. Now, what is your website behavior in terms of converting visitors to buyers? Now, that comes in two stages. One is, okay, you must have a website that works pretty well mechanically and visually so that people say, oh, I wanted to buy this anyway. Let me click here. Let me click there. By the way, you're dealing with an audience that is impaired. So now you have to build real serious functionality. Let's assume you do that. Then there is this this Uh, elephant in the room for every e-commerce website called shopping cart abandonment. It's like 75% of the people who start the purchase never complete it. So how is your website handling it? So Keith, in the end, it becomes very expensive to drive traffic to your website. This is challenge one, but even if you have plenty of cash and you do this in such a quick short period of time which you want then you still have challenge number two which is what business do you want to be in pick pack ship customer service returns refunds phone calls and sell your product by the way the most important thing in selling online is none of those things that i just mentioned it's demand planning because if your advertising is done well and your website is working well, your shopping cart is working perfectly, it's not losing people. If you don't have inventory, what are you going to do? It's all wasted, right? So, it takes so much time and effort and infrastructure and algorithms and historical data in order for you to plan the kind of inventory you should be carrying. And that is the real challenge, and you will never have time to get to it. So, so what I always recommend companies that are just starting is by all means put up the website, just link the buy button to your Amazon listing and let Amazon handle the logistics, let Amazon handle the shopping cart business, let Amazon handle the customer experience, which is, as you know, is much better than anybody can provide. With all the technology available for impaired people, I'm sure they'll have much better than what you can offer. So I always tell people, listen, if you want to be an online selling business, let Amazon take care of everything. You build your infrastructure, you create your following, and you learn how to plan your inventory management. And that way, you you can't. That's the, and this model will absolutely scale overnight. You receive a thousand orders, Amazon will fulfill it as long as you have inventory. So that's usually what I recommend. And uh, and building a brand on Amazon also has a lot of different perks that are available. So usually this this is my uh, humble suggestion for anybody starting.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that, like, that's our speculation at the moment as well. Um, and, you know, like, literally, like, well, we'll, L, we'll a b test tested against our own website just to get a sense. Because the other piece for us is, is that, you know, our technology is so new that, like, no one is Google searching, like, hey, haptic band. Or, you know, like, no one's looking up, like, hey, navigation with vibration, right? You know, like, it's, they're looking up something else. And then they're finding us or if they're looking for us, they, you know, they look for us directly because they've heard about something specific that we can do. So the the big piece is, is like, I agree from the fulfillment side, like definitely even from our direct to customer side, we're still going to have Amazon fulfill it. But what we're trying to figure out is, is that like, you know, we're going to build our Amazon store up and like run that piece. Um, we're going to be working with the uh, within the, the Amazon startup program to kind of like build that part of it out. And then we're also going to build our other piece as well. And we expect that Amazon is going to outperform our existing website. I mean, you know, if if it doesn't, that would be very, very, you know, like, I mean, it'd be great that, like, somehow we did better than Amazon. Or, I mean, that, like, we were doing terrible on Amazon. Like, one of the two, you know. Well,
0: uh, there is also the opportunity with Amazon. They are always looking for this kind of, you know, unique products. So, they have... Uh, something called, I believe, Launchpad. Uh, are you familiar with Amazon Launchpad?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. But you can talk a bit more about it. I'm sure some of the listeners will love to hear about a bit of it as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's for, it's, it's basically Amazon takes the responsibility to market your product because it's a brand new. So I had a guest, uh, his name was uh, Dave Clark. He actually created a pet Uh, He was in the pet tech space and he had a product and he actually is the person that coined the phrase pet tech. And uh, it's a very senior gentleman. uh, He's run public companies. He's a startup junkie. So he's always looking for something and something unique. So he used Amazon Launchpad and, and he was... Uh, so for anybody listening, if you look up uh, Dave Clark, you will hear him talk about his experience. And he could not say enough good things about the program. So he basically said, Amazon took care of everything. And uh, it's a wholesale deal. In other words, you are selling to Amazon. You're not selling directly yourself. You don't have to worry about uh, inventory or anything, you just need to worry about their POs, fulfilling their POs. But this is different than being a vendor central. I am the last person who will advocate being a vendor to Amazon, <laughs> just as a straightforward vendor. Um, but for Launchpad, that's a different relationship because they are actively promoting your product, and they don't accept just anybody who applies. They it's by invitation or. Or, or something else has, has to be happening for them to say, okay, we want this to be in launch pad and it's a wholesale deal. And I said to him, uh, so what are the payment terms? And he said, it's much, much more favorable than any other wholesale deal that you find out there. Cause usually it's 90 days. So if you get any department store, give you a PO, they'll pay in 90 days. So this is nowhere near like that. So much more favorable margins are very favorable. So, uh launchpad for revolutionary products like this they would be a good fit
1: that's fantastic to know definitely want to look into that thank you
0: yeah so you have uh, i mean you you your approach is absolutely the right way you know you need to test different things uh, but you know you have another huge advantage you have a recurring revenue model and also there's a perfect good enough reason why a customer would need to contact you because they need to register with you. They need to get their app registered and then link it up to the, the wristband, right? These are all legitimate reasons. So you actually have the best of both worlds because Amazon does not want sellers con- contacting the customer directly unless there is a good reason. So, uh, and that reason should not ever be to divert the customer away from Amazon. That's not. It's against their policies. So, um, you know, you, you have you a have natural relationship with every user. So, tell us about your team. Uh, what kind of a team do you have to make this happen?
1: Yeah, um, we have a pretty impressive, like, globally based team um, that's been working on this for, you know, the last, you know, basically like, you know, half decade or so. Um, so, you know, we have development teams in India, we have engineers in Germany, um, we have like special operations in Argentina, marketing, we have marketing in Albania, um, and of course, you know, like we have a strong US presence as well, mainly uh, in New York, where we have our office at. So that's kind of like our, our 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 global team. And essentially, when we first started the company, we we started with an idea of like, uh, remote work first. And so, um, you know, our company is called where Works, and we have this policy called Wherever Works, which is kind of like, doesn't matter where you are as long as the work gets done. And so when COVID shifted the world to remote work, it actually like improved our efficiency like by like more than double because all of a sudden the world started working the way that we did, which was great.
0: So this was already your model. So, you know, there is a movie called Whatever Works. Uh, and uh, so I always, I mean that happens to be my life philosophy, whatever works. Uh, it's a Woody Allen movie, but I, I never uh, heard wherever works until now. So that's a good motto.
1: Yeah, I mean, but you know the, the important part of that motto was the works part, not the wherever, you know like. exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah as long as uh, as long as it works, then yeah, that's okay so um so you have you have a fairly diverse operation so how um, first of all this is headquartered here in the u.s right yeah so as far as distribution of this are you going to start in the u.s and then spread or are you going to start in multiple places
1: no we're starting with the u.s market like exclusively so right now the wayband app is only available in the united states Um, The big thing for us is, is that, you know, we have limited production and we want to keep that right now very, very close to like our home market. Um, The bigger piece is, is that, you know, as you get around the world, um, address formats change dramatically. Um, And how you input those addresses can like determine, like if if you put your address with the number in in the United States at the end, you might not end up in the right place and in Romania, for example, the numbers are at the end of the address. And so one of the bigger challenges that we're having is it's having kind of like global formatting issues and making sure that when we open up in that country that the mapping data is uh, filtered, formatted, and enough to support that country as a market. And so we've decided to open up one market at a time.
0: So, you know, Keith, something else just uh, hit me. Uh, Since I'm mostly about data, you know, navigation data obviously is key for for this to be successful. However, when somebody is using this service, because it's a service at the end of the day, right? So when they download the app, they have to register with you. So you know who they are, you know their demographics, and you also know that they are impaired, right?
1: Um, so there's, there's limits on like the types of different information that we can collect. So what we're doing is, is we're trying to find ways that get people to give us the information voluntarily by, and so what we're doing is, is we're, we're offering different services to people who have an impairment to make the app a bit better. Um, and then we're going to use those as a proxy to determine visual impairment and visual impairedness percentage wise of our app users. But right now, because of like the the data privacy pieces, you know, like there's no way that we can tell unless you volunteer us that information that you're a visually impaired user or not.
0: Yeah, but well, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you have metadata, so exactly. by protecting their privacy. So the data itself that you are collecting on the activities of these impaired people that's that's very valuable piece of mm-hmm. I mean that's really what it's about. So you really are a junior Facebook at the end of the day. Because, you know, Facebook, iPhone, you know, Android phone, they're all collecting data, but there is no focus on, and they're collecting, of course, they're gigantic companies. But the way I see this is you are, in a way, junior Facebook, junior iPhone, more junior iPhone is more like it. But you have focus on this audience that you're targeting. And, and I'm sure that there is a lot of good that you can do by simply recognizing oh there are some characteristics so you can have other products coming out to assist them and I mean that that part this is a this is an ocean really for you to go in and discover
1: exactly you know like and and, and on our side of things like we really you know we call ourselves a haptic platform company and we really see the wayband as the beginning of touch as the next frontier in digital communication like when we left and we went into the digital world from the analog world we only took two senses with us we took sight and we took sound we left everything else behind but if you look at kind of like research dollars spent over the last hundred years on the five senses and you look around your room you can see very easily where those dollars went like mainly to verb vision secondarily but way less towards sound and then you know. Smell and taste being negligible. Touch is kind of super small, but next. And so if you look around your room, there's seven screens looking at you right now, like your watch, your phones, your tablets, your computer, your TV. Five of those screens have speakers in them, right? Based off of, you know, the amount that got the second amount of research spending, right? And, you know, spatial audio, 7.1, whatever, you know, numbers we're on right now, right? You know, like audio got better. But then, you know, like, When you're in VR looking at the freckles on that person's face and then you hear like a box drop behind you at five o'clock because you have spatial audio, you walk over to go pick up that box. All of it is gone because like there's no tactility like in this virtual experience. And so the way we saw haptics was that VR was obvious. Gaming was obvious. Medical obvious. And we wanted to skip beyond what was obvious to see where does haptics go next? Where does it go after? after it goes to the obvious places? And can we use that as an inspiration to get it to go to those non-obvious places a lot sooner? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why we leapfrogged kind of out of the, you know, the VR gaming spaces and jumped into the real world. But we see massive applications now that we've set ourselves up as experts in the space to go back and back. Yeah. Well, the more you
0: talk about it, the more I think this is a really good fit for Launchpad. Hmm. so uh I, I i would definitely look into that uh i'm i have a feeling they may jump on it but you know you never know everything changes but um so so i mean th- this is uh, what what you said is just a minute ago touch is the say that again because that's really your your thing touch oh I, type,
1: uh, the future of digital communications
0: yeah, touch is the future. Touch is
1: the future of digital communications.
0: That's what it is, and that's what you are doing. That's great. So uh, let's uh, talk about you a little bit. So I I know when you and I first talked, you told me your story. I mean, it was such an interesting story about your experience. You know, your education. So what you did. So tell us about that uh, because that was so funny.
1: About, so you mean like the, the educational journey that I yeah, took? Where
0: you where you went to school first?
1: Oh uh, yeah yeah um and so so I started off um, as a mechanical engineer. Um, I went to Rutgers University in New Brunswick in New Jersey. Um, I graduated you know after struggling for six years to get my degree, and then after six months, I realized like I don't really want to be an engineer. Um, so why
0: why did you want to become a mechanical engineer?
1: Oh, why? Because so when I was a kid, I was pretty gifted from a math point of view, you know, like, and I was also really gifted as an artist. So like I could draw, I got most artistic in every yearbook that I'd ever been in since elementary school. Um, But also, I was super duper good at math and science. And when I was 10 years old, basically, I kind of, figured out that artists didn't really get famous until after they were dead and like my (laughs) two-year-old self had a really big problem with death so I cried for a few days and then I was like you know I'm going to be an architect at 11 and I was like pretty resolved and at you know I read something somewhere that said like architects are overworked and underpaid I'm like "Mm, I don't want to do that like I'm going to be an engineer because I'm really good at math. Now, who's
0: te- but you have very good advice. I mean, who's at 10 years old? I mean, who's telling you all this? Are, you know, artists yes. are famous when they are dead. Architects are overpaid and uh, uh, underpaid and overworked. Who's telling you all this?
1: I have no idea, actually. I, I felt like I was reading it somewhere, but like I still don't even understand what I would be reading at 10 to like help me figure, or 12 to help me figure these things out. But I remember being like by 12 because... 11 years old was like, hey, architect is like science and art, like perfect, right? You know, I'm good at both. And, and then it became like, okay, engineering, because like, you know, like I'm really good at math and science, right? And that became what I did until I was 24. And then I graduated. And I was like, hmm, you know, not quite exactly what I thought I'd be doing as an engineer. You know, I thought it'd be like building rocket ships or like crash testing motorcycles, Um, And I was doing like consulting work, which was super fun and it was really great, but it just wasn't the dream that I had as a 12-year-old. And so when I look back, I was like, how do I incorporate, like, what do I do now that this vision that I have for my life wasn't accurate, you know, like, and I was like, well, you left this whole art part out, you know, of course it's not accurate. And I'm like, okay, well, you like the science and engineering part because you love taking crazy principles that no one understands and making them do useful things that everybody needs. But... On the other hand, you know what I'm saying? You're really good at art. And when I put art and, like, application together, I got fashion. And so all of a sudden, I had a dream of becoming, like, the greatest shoemaker in the world. And, you know, I went to FIT. Literally, with that was my opening letter. Like, I'm going to be the greatest shoemaker in the world. It's funny because I never even designed. shoes. really, sorry, FIT. I lied. Um, so, so thanks for putting up. me I, in.
0: I'm still, I'm st- because I, I'm an engineer by train. So, yeah. Uh, I never would think about fashion mm-hmm. as an engineer, so where does that come from? I mean when you cross art, that's how we introduced you know introduced you at the beginning. So when you cross art with technology, why are you ending up with fashion because something else is driving that?
1: yeah, you know like um. For me, I ended up with fashion. Be- it, it was it was it was very simple. It was it was kind of like hmm, interested in applications that do useful things. The, the piece for the art part was like I never saw myself as an artist. Like I don't ever call myself an artist, even though you know like it's it's you know like like in my mind I was like hmm, like I feel like an artist has the ability to conceptualize, for example, something like throwing paint on a toilet bowl and putting it in the middle of a museum like I don't have that ability it's like to myself it's like you know like this is art you know I'm saying like I just felt like I didn't have that 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 high brownness I want to say you know and, and 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 for lack of a better word but the thing that I got was is like practicality and so I was like hey what's what's what is art that is useful to people and to me the first thing that showed up was just fashion and i just ran with it i was like okay bet you know like this makes sense I, you know i like fashion i like dressing and so i started looking into the fashion space um i started working at nordstrom which basically taught me everything i don't understand about customer support right now because they were awesome <laughs> um you know like you know i had the i had the woman's like shoe team review my portfolio that i used to get into fit like the visual and merchandising team so You know, I was I was using every step to kind of get closer to the dream. And I really felt like fashion was really it for me. Um, And then I got through I I went through the program. It was 2008. You know, it happened to be like the housing crisis and there were no jobs available. So I was like, wow, I'm really enjoying the school thing. Let me just sit here and get another bachelor's degree. And after that, I left, I graduated, and you know I got a job basically like working as like a freelance like first as an intern and then like, as a freelance designer for like one of my favorite designers at the time, which was like Calvin Klein um, and so I was there for a few months. it was fantastic. I left there after a bit, I had a temporary position and went to go do some work as a technical designer for the sports Act um, and as a technical designer, basically like I drew blueprints for factories to make clothes and my engineering degree, I drew blueprints also. So it was, it was, it was, it was a one-to-one translation literally from like going into fashion to going into pattern making and engineering into like, you know, like directing, you know, so that's how I ended up in tech design. Cause they were like, Hey, you have this, like, you have this strong engineering background, you know, like, and then ultimately I left that position and ended up at working at coach where I was a handbag engineer, which is funny because like I didn't know that job existed until they yeah, gave
0: handbag me. engineer. What, what does that do?
1: Uh, so basically, we were we were in charge for like we handled the structural. We engineered the handbags. Like there was a the team at Coach, you know, like we had scientists in like white lab coats, and they would like load test bags. Like every coach bag can hold 150 pounds, and the big one can hold 300. So if you fall off a cliff you know, you're good. And we tested that to make sure that that was the case, you know, like, and a, a big part of, you know, like my time, I, I love my time in fashion. It was like, you know, like one of my, my favorite times in life where I felt like literally fashion, like had saved me in a way that it gave me a sense of purpose that I felt like I, I hadn't experienced before I'd found it. Um, but then I was also slightly challenged because I was looking at the fashion industry as a total Right And you know, like I'm engineering these bags the last twenty years, but like our business model needs you to buy a new bag every like six or eight months, right you know like and then when you look at all the waste that was being created from the fashion industry, it's just two thousand and twelve, like you know fast fashion was like at the lead and forefront, and like when I also read all the biographies of all the people that I had aspired to be, Calvin Klein. You know, like, you know, like Terry Mueller, um, you know, Dior, Armani, Alexander McQueen, you know, like there was lots of drugs in the top of my industry. There was lots of burnout. There was ridiculous amounts of burnout. And there was a ridiculous amount of suicide, like very few industries that you go to the upper echelon and, and like see such high numbers of like just like like challenge and with that what i personally felt like that reflected because that's where i was going I'm like, i am I want to be that i want to read about that so i can be that and when i looked at that i was like wow this, this story feels a bit like dismal in a way and like what is going on here and when i personally looked at it i saw that it was basically it's the requirements of the fashion industry it's like you used to have to design a collection once a year and then it became twice a year and then it became four times a year and it became six seasons a year and then like it went to like infinity and like basically as a fashion designer your genius is like your last collection. And like you can be, you can go from being a genius to being like absolutely shit. And like the span of like three months, there are very few people that have the capacity to go on that roller coaster, you know what I'm saying, and deal with it and come out healthily. You know,
0: it's like the movie business, isn't it? Uh, you know, you, you, work, <laughs> you work, you work, you work such a long time and then, you know, you gather. And by the way, it takes a long, long time before the production starts. And then when the production starts, it's like you create a whole operation overnight. You have to almost put it together, everybody works like crazy. And then the moment that the movie, the production is over, everybody disappears. And then you know finally it gets released. And then within a few months, it's yesterday's news. Nobody cares about it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, it's very frustrating. So mm-hmm. uh so but what what did that f- feel like because i had a similar experience with some of the people that i was i would always look up to so you you go through your whole life aspiring to be like somebody uh, either as an individual or as the certain kind of industry that you want to be in and surround yourself with and then suddenly you realize this is a total disappointment I don't want to be like that. So that kind of leaves you in disoriented, no?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I I think that the biggest piece was I was like, kind of like, wow, you know, like this is really great for me personally. But like, then when I started feeling, because it's like, you know, like I also like, you know, like I was, I was born in Camden, New Jersey. It's like a pretty poor place, you know, like, you know, like, and, and I feel like kind of like I was, you know, quote unquote, one of the few that like made it out. Right. You know? And, And so it's like, To me, it's kind of like at the expense of all the people who didn't make it out. So that kind of I did, you know, like in that ratio, I felt that like I can't be a representative from my community. And then all I've done as the person who's like, quote unquote, made it is like a superficial experience of life. You know, like I, I just felt like I had to do something that actually improved lives. And so, like, I love fashion. I love, you know, like the craftsmanship and the quality of it. But when I looked at the industry impacts, and was just like, hmm, there has to be something that's a bit better than what it is that I'm doing. And so I, I decided to leave my job at coach, which I love, you know, like, and I went back to school for a third time, this time to get a master's degree in industrial design um, to try to, under, to answer that question for myself.
0: Well, that's, uh, you know, you are an ideologist. So, you know, there is a favorite quote of mine. It says, uh, uh, I I'm an ideologist. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on my way. So you, <laughs> you, you always find your way. <laughs> and you you always have. So uh this it's very admirable. So um for anybody listening, you know, if you're struggling and whatever, look, here is an example, right?
1: Yeah. You always <laughs> have
0: to say no. So that's great, Keith. So Tell us how people can reach you and your contact information. We'll put that on our website and also on YouTube with your episode. But um, give it to us now so that people can connect with you.
1: Yes. Yeah, so you can find us on Instagram at wear.works, works. You can find us on Facebook at Haptic Technology. And you can look on our website at www.where.works, WR W-O-R-K-S. And of great. course, you can go to the App Store and search for Wayband and download the app right now. We'd love to have your feedback.
0: Great. Thank you, Keith. This was great.
1: Thank you so much. And I just want to like end on a, on a note around, because you touched me with the, the four people feeling a bit lost Every time I changed careers, I hadn't, like, I didn't see some grand gesture of wearable technology and change careers because I knew every step was a progression toward wearable tech. Like, when I was an engineer, I wanted to be an engineer. And when I rethought fashion, like, it took three years or four years for me to convince my grandmother that her grandson, the engineer, now wants to be a cobbler, you know, like, you know, and then after that, you know, like after making it into that space, like restarting all over again for some ideolo- ideology that I thought that I had at like, you know, I'm now paying and like school fees, what I used to make per year, you know, like it, it was at every given moment, it was such a big gamble. It was such a big shot in the dark. But, you know, I think that like the moral of the story is, is that like in hindsight, it all is 2020. Like now it looks like it was perfectly crafted as, a, as an experience. And I think that when you go through your journey, whatever that is, and all the twists and turns that you can't see right now, when you look back, you're going to feel the same way too.
0: Yeah, it's like Churchill said, if you think you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was great, Keith. So, um, well, thank you again. And uh, that brings us to the end of another episode. I'll see you on the next one.
1: Cheers, everybody. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.